Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of the Tennis Abstract podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman from TennisAbstract.com, and with me as usual is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl is also the host of the 30 Love Tennis podcast, so if you're looking for interviews with people other than the two of us, that's your number one source for 30 men or less interviews with people around the tennis world. Sorry we missed last week's episode, we had a bit of a scheduling problem, but that just gives us twice as much to talk about this week, or I don't know, one and a half times as much if you consider the upcoming week as well. Don't need to do the math, even though I just did. Um, let's start with the Montreal Rogers Cup, the men's side, and the big match yesterday was the final between Rafael Nadal and Daniel Medvedev. I was really excited about this match. I thought Medvedev was playing great. I, I think Medvedev is one of the, the best up-and-coming hardcore players, and Rafael Nadal shot that down in 71 minutes, which for Rafael Nadal, that's as, pretty much as fast as a tennis match ever goes. So going into the U.S. Open, where we've got all eyes on Djokovic and Federer, but Nadal is, is, is definitely in the mix as well, and Nadal just spanked somebody who I would have thought of as kind of a dark horse. So, Carl, let, let's start there. Like, seeing this result, 6-3, 6-love to Nadal over Medvedev, I mean, is this is this just more evidence that nobody's really challenging the big three at this point? It certainly looks that way. I mean, it was it was nobody could beat them but each other at Wimbledon, so that was the extreme for the season. And... It was almost the case that the French Dominique team ended up outlasting Djokovic in the semis, but otherwise it would have been the same scenario as Wimbledon. They've been a little more shaky away from the slams this year, but yeah, lately they they look pretty untouchable except when they're playing each other. And hey, it's going to be the big four again soon. It is. We have Andy Murray coming back. I don't want to get expectations up too high for Andy Murray since I mean he's not doing that either I think he's playing his first match in Cincinnati today and just for reference today is Monday August 12th I think he has Gasquet in the first round which is a pretty gentle draw coming back to the tour since Gasquet is dealing with his own comeback and and physical fragility um but Nadal's supposed to be the guy who's beatable on hard court. I mean, he, he, he had a great U.S. Open last year, and I mean, he's always competitive on the surface, but he, he got pushed pretty hard by Dan Evans in Montreal. I mean, he lost a set to Fanini, which is, I mean, happened before, but still, it's, it's not what you want to be doing if you're, if you're, showing, if you're looking like a dominant player. Um, I mean, do you think that he, was he that much better against Medvedev than against those other guys, or, or is Medvedev just, I mean, am I am I overstating how much of a threat Medvedev is? Is he that far away from competing with not even the best hardcore guy of the big three? Well, we always try not to extrapolate too much from one match, and maybe if they played again today, it would be you know seven six. Four, six. six one. Yeah, exactly. You know, it could be. Would you say six four six one? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, maybe it would be that. Six, maybe it'd be six four six one Medvedev. No, after watching that match, I don't think Medvedev would win the replay, but it certainly could be closer. Uh, but you know, I do think that I have the benefit of having read your brilliant outline, but that maybe Medvedev's style does not challenge Rafa very much. So let's talk about this style. And in the last twenty four hours, I've I've watched replays of both the semifinal against Kachanov, in which Medvedev looked very strong, and the final against Nadal, in which he didn't. And the tactic that really sticks out to me with Medvedev is 
more than I, I mean this is all anecdotal I, I I could look up the numbers but I haven't yet um, he seems to hit more inside out backhands or sometimes they're called off backhands when you you've got a shot in the and you're standing in the middle of the court um, and and you you hit sort of a half inside out backhand to your opponent's forehand or your lefty opponent's backhand that's a very rare shot on the men's tour. I mean, there are a few women like Agar Advanska who hit it a lot, but not so much on the men's side. And Medvedev was hitting tons of those against Kachanov. And I was a bit baffled by the tactic because he's feeding more ground strokes to Kachanov's forehand, which seems like an like an odd move. But I mean, I guess it worked. He he won that match pretty handily. But he didn't get to hit many many of those against Rafa. Partly it's it's because Rafa didn't give him any balls up the middle of the court. Partly it seemed to be a choice of Medvedev who wanted to hit his cross-court backhand to, to Rafa's forehand, which seems a bit baffling. But I, I, I want to talk about this tactic. Do you, do you think that there, that's a particularly valuable shot to have, like the, this, this sort of half-inside-out backhand that's uncommon on the men's tour? Well, anything uncommon is probably somewhat valuable for being unfamiliar to your opponent. I think with Medvedev, a big part of it is that he really likes his backhand for good reason. So he's trying to hit more of them. And I think it's also fairly deceptive. I'm curious what your impression is from watching as much of him as you did. I I usually find it fairly deceptive in terms of knowing until late where that ball is going to go from that position. Because he could still um, hit it. You know, I, I don't know if you'd call that at that point cross-court or inside-in or what exactly, but he could hit it to both sides, and he has the ability to hit it to both sides. So if he's going after the forehand but not always going after the forehand, maybe it is sensible if uh, the other player doesn't know it until later in the shot. Yeah, that might be the key difference between Kachanov and Nadal is is Kachanov is not a great mover, not not great on on the ground, and Nadal is you know, one of the best movers, maybe the best player on the, at the baseline. So if you can gain that split second of surprise by occasionally going with the inside out, inside out backhand, then maybe that does leave someone like Kachanov flat footed or a half step out of it, and to Nadal it just doesn't really matter. Nadal does just fine in in tough baseline rallies against players better than Medvedev so maybe that's that's a key thing there and and maybe that explains why Medvedev has been able to really just plow through a lot of the rest of the tour even if that didn't translate that well to competing against uh, against Nadal Um, do you think that that's a tactic he should be able to get more mileage out of against Nadal. Like, like I said, it, it's it seemed odd to me that he was going to Kachanov's forehand. Maybe it was just a surprise or point construction, but it seems odd to take to take advantage of going to a right-handed player's forehand, but then not use that same shot to go to Nadal's backhand. Because usually that's maybe not usually often that's the game plan for for players who want to attack Nadal is you just keep it away from his forehand. Medvedev is one of the few guys who has a backhand that can do that. And then he didn't. Do you think he should have? Yeah, I mean, you could say that he should have done lots of different things if he lost by that much. Uh, So it seems like he should have been doing that more because what he did wasn't working because nothing was working. But I think Nadal having such a great year, and he really has had a great year. He's tops in the race and... Uh, lost some big matches that if if he had won just a couple of them, he'd be way ahead in the race and, and have 
bunch of big titles, um, a bunch more big titles. He, his backhand has been really, really strong this year. And so I think players increasingly have, have figured out they have to be more balanced in their attack of him. So it's, you know, it's always been a combination of if you go at his backhand, you better be precise because otherwise it's a forehand and, or, or you miss, like it's a very narrow window you're aiming for. And these days it's maybe less of an advantage than you used to get. I mean, your stats show his forehand is still well ahead of his backhand. Uh, so it's not like, um, you know, simply an even, evenly balanced player, but my sense is that it's, it's closer than it used to be. Is it? Did did you actually like plot the? Were you able to sort of show the trend and show whether that's the case or whether his his forehand edge over backhand is just as great as ever? I haven't done that, but I could. I feel like I wrote something in the last couple of months where I was maybe I was doing that for Federer during Wimbledon. I think that's that's when I was running those numbers, but I haven't done it for Nadal. I'm not sure, but I think that that seems right. Um, I mean, if you think back to to young Nadal, then he was, he was, the highlight reel shots were all forehands with the occasional backhand passing shot thrown in. Uh, and yeah, I, I don't think it's as, it's as extreme of a difference these days. Um, sort of a, a, a meta topic that I wanted to talk about that Medvedev slots into pretty neatly is something that, that you discussed with one of your guests on a 30 love episode from almost two years ago. Um, you had Mike Cation, who's, uh, a friend of this show as well, who is the commentator for the USTA Challenger streams. So he's on the road watching, I don't know, a couple dozen weeks worth of challengers a year. I mean, he's, he's a road warrior watching all these challenger guys, really gets to know the players, um, really interested in the game, and, and for my money, one of the best commentators in the business. And you asked him, which I thought was a, a, a really good question, um, if, if he had any insights into what caused some of the challenger players to succeed, to kind of level up, to become tour pros, while others who who maybe had a lot of the same talents, abilities, weren't able to do that. And his response, was, I thought, again, equally insightful, was that the the guys who were able to, to go up a level, they're the ones who, uh, who figured out how to finish points. And it doesn't have to be all the same way. I mean, you've got someone like Riley Opelka, who he was talking about then, who... He doesn't really need to have a lot of tactics because he can finish points with his serve. But then you have other guys who, like the clay court grinders or smaller guys like an Alex Dimonor, who don't necessarily get the, the points off their serve, but they figure out how to construct points to finish them uh, on the ground. They're not just waiting for errors. Um, I, I watched a challenger final a couple weeks ago from uh, from Gatineau in, in Canada. It was Jason Kubler against a French guy whose name I'm forgetting right now. And Kubler won, and, and Kubler's a really fun player to watch, really solid off the ground. But uh, it seemed to be a good example of what Mike Kishin was not talking about, <laughs> that these guys were, were very solid with their ground strokes, but they were they were pretty much waiting for the other guy to miss. I mean, hitting some good serves, getting points that way, but generally just pushing towards an unforced error, hoping it would be the other guy who did it. And we talked about in our last episode, Alex Dimonor with his outstanding service performance. This is a guy who you don't normally think of as having a big serve, but even when his when the ball was coming back, he was super aggressive on the ground, not necessarily coming into the net, but taking a step or two inside the baseline, going for winners constantly. The clay court grinders we t- we've talked about a lot on the show, like Diego Schwartzman, they're the same way. Like 
They don't come to the net. They don't hit big serves, but they're always pushing. Um, and I mean pushing in terms of being aggressive, not pushing in terms of the annoying guy at your club who you can't beat. But I was thinking about that in in the context of, of Medvedev, who who isn't always that aggressive from the baseline, and also Alexander Zverev, who's having a down year, and, and also when his serve doesn't get him a point, he does seem to kind of wait it out and hope the other guy makes a mistake. And if we think in those terms about figuring out how to finish points, we know Rafa can do it. Do you think that's a weakness in Medvedev's game, that like, he's willing to sit back and play these 30-shot rallies and... If, if he's playing someone who won't make the mistake, then he doesn't really have an answer to that? Yeah, it's it's a hard question for me to answer because a weakness could mean like a poor tactic, like he he should be playing more aggressively, or it could be he's playing optimally for his skills, but these are his skills, and this is what he's best at. And... You know, I also hesitate to be too hard on the guy. I think earlier in the show you called him something like one of the most promising up-and-comers on hard courts. I mean, just looking at his ranking and his age, he's the most promising up-and-comer, possibly. Like, maybe you could put Tsitsipas and Zverev ahead of him, but right now, based on recent results, like, he's 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 doing it better than anyone. Um, and I... I think, you know, he's he's got he's got enough wins to say, okay, he does know how to use this tactic to to beat players. Like we we were talking about some things we found baffling about how he played a semifinal and he he won that. He won he won one of the sets easily. So, um at the same time, yeah, I mean, I think if if we're talking about can he reach number 1 playing this way, probably not, at least not while the big 3 seem ageless and just to get stronger with age relative to the field. So that suggests either he does need to change tactics and that he can, or if he can't, that he somehow needs to improve his kill shots. And I mean, a lot of it seems to come back to the forehand. Like generally there are very few examples of very top players whose preferred shot for finishing points is a backhand. Uh, And maybe, maybe that's like a whole separate episode on a whole separate podcast about biomechanics or something. But uh, I just don't think his forehand is is good enough to build an aggressive game around. Yeah, do you think that that a lot of a lot of these same comments apply to Zverev as well? I mean, he he's got a bigger serve than Medvedev, but I think he favors his backhand, if not as much. He doesn't have the, the sort of unique tactics we're talking about for Medvedev, but he sits back. He's willing to play long rallies. Um, his forehand isn't world-class, I think it's fair to say, even if it's better than Medvedev. I mean, is, is he facing the same the same kind of block to overcoming the big three? Yep, and, you know, someone we've talked about more in the past, Borna Cioric, I think similar, uh, smaller guy, so not similar in, in seeming like he should be super aggressive, but there are guys of his size who have played much more aggressively, and I think the forehand has at times held him back too. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, again, like I don't want to draw too broad a conclusion because let's say with Zverev, who's having a down year, he's had big wins against uh, Federer and Djokovic in the last 12 months. So it could it could happen again, and maybe we reassess that style, or maybe it means that he is able to play more aggressively than we're crediting for at the moment. But yeah, right now with with a style where you're you're 
big enough to be playing a more aggressive game, but sitting back and being the more patient player, you could have trouble. You, you have trouble no matter what beating Nadal or Federer or Djokovic, but it seems especially unlikely for that to work out against them. Yeah, it seems like it's it's a good way to become a fringy top 10 player and not necessarily a good way to get better than that. And an analysis I'd love to see or or do, it would, would probably require a bunch of steps, but I'm thinking in terms of something I did a couple of years ago, trying to figure out what the min, what I call the minimum viable return game. I think we've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, and uh, I think it was Nick Kyrgios that got me started on this, that we tend to look at prospects with big electric serves and, and get excited about them, project slam wins and number ones and all that stuff. But if you're someone like Kyrgios who doesn't return very well, then there aren't very many precedents in, in tennis history that that suggest you're going to make it to the top. I mean, most players who win slams, who become number one, they might be big servers, but they're not weak returners. They're at least middle range returners, often better. Um, so if, if you are someone like, like Kyrgios, then like maybe your best case scenario is peak Milos Ronic or something. Like, and, and even that would require better returning than, than Kyrgios does. But along those same lines of saying, you know, if you want to be number one, this skill has to reach a certain threshold. Maybe for returning, that means winning 35% of your return points. There probably are pretty reliable thresholds for other skills as well. Like maybe your forehand has to be at a certain level. And I mean, the, I mentioned earlier this would take several steps because I think we'd have to pin down better how we're quantifying that in the first place. But if we were able to quantify it, then maybe we could say you have to be winning this many points in a match off your forehand. You have to be winning this many points off of your serve. If you're not serving and hitting forehands that big, then maybe there is a ceiling that's a few steps away from number one or winning a slam. And that could be what, what you're talking about there with Medvedev and Chorich and maybe Zverev that could keep them from getting to the top and might be a reason why someone like Sitsipas is, is the one who will... Um, who will end up number one when the big three is finally out of the picture. Um, speaking of this generation, one of the things I heard repeatedly over the course of the week in Montreal was the surface seemed slow. The fact that Nadal won, um, Nadal beat Medvedev easily, Christian Garin beat John Isner. I mean, there's a lot of signs that the surface was not particularly fast. I don't, I, I didn't see the court pace index, the CPI, but I don't put a ton of stock in that anyway. Uh, it's a little boring week to week talking about the, the surface speed, even though I know a lot of people love to do it. Uh, I want to talk about something bigger picture, but first, Carl, did you have any impressions along these lines? Did you think it was particularly slow in Montreal this week? It seems a little slow. I, I don't know what to make of Isner losing. I mean, I think Isner struggles on fast courts at times too. And against a player who's probably bottom 50%, of you know the top 100 in serving, Isner should have a better chance of breaking serve than he usually does, and you know these things are symmetrical anyway. Is my point. So uh, I don't know what to make of of the Isner loss, but I know that's not our main topic. No, but it, it is. I'm glad you brought it up. I noticed he was one of the few guys who played last night in Cincinnati with the, their Sunday start there, and he played Dusan Lajevic and won that match in three. But the set he lost was the second set that he lost six one. So he managed to get get broken twice in a, in a set, maybe three times, but probably just twice, uh, against a guy who's not that comfortable on hard courts and in a tournament that's typically one of the faster hard courts, uh, at least not a notably slow one. 
but I wonder, like, I know there's lots of theories floating around that the surfaces are converging in speed or they're all getting slower. And, you know, I've, I've done some research that points in both directions. So kind of pick whichever one you like better. I, I don't think there's a clear answer to that. But, um, but it seems to me like a lot of the guys we're talking about don't have the same surface sensitivity that the, the last couple of generations did. Because you, like Zverev Bachelashvili, for instance, they had that thrilling semifinal in Hamburg on clay a couple of weeks ago. They had virtually the same result on, on hard court in Montreal this past week. Um, Medvedev has been has had some success on all surfaces this year. Sitsipas, same thing. Um, Kachinov seems like he should be a fast court guy, but he does okay on clay. Philly's Ajayali Asim, I mean, just on his first try playing on grass succeeds there. He's gotten to, in, into finals on all three surfaces. It, it just seems like they're, whether it's because of the surfaces themselves or whether it's because the tactics that uh, are coming out of this generation, making the surfaces not matter. It, it, it just seems like it's not as big a factor as it used to be. Do you think there's something to that, that maybe we should just stop putting so much weight on the surface speed every week? Uh, I mean, there there were some players who had nice clay seasons, and some of them have not matched it elsewhere. I think Berrettini we talked about is the exception. So I think there are still some exceptions. Maybe not all of them are young, but yeah, it does it does seem like maybe it's a little bit watching. Uh, the big four, I mean, we would say the big four, very different generation, a generation where we think of the surfaces as very different and the results being very different. And there's truth to that in the sense that they were all so successful overall that it's glaring when way more of their titles come on one surface. But they were actually all really good on every surface. And if they if you take them back a round or two, in each tournament so that they're making this, the finals or the semis on one surface and like the quarters on another, it wouldn't feel as glaring. Uh, and I don't think they changed their Rafa maybe is the most dramatic example of changing tactics on surfaces, but even he, uh, watching him win Montreal, like you wouldn't think that he's a totally different player than the guy who won the French. So I don't know. I think, I think this goes back a little, further in that so many of these young guys modeled their games after these all-time greats and saw players who were able to succeed everywhere playing fairly similarly. Yeah, this is another thing I think we've brought up on the podcast before, but another analysis I'd love to see is getting a sense of, of how surface-sensitive different players are and different matchups are. You're right to point out that there there is a class of, of clay court grinders, and there probably always will be, so... Uh, Berrettini is an, an exception to that, but you'll always have the Garins and the Londeros, guys who are pretty much clay quarters who sometimes have a high enough ranking to get into hard court masters and, and the hard court slams. But the, the higher ranked guys we're talking about do do seem to be pretty even. So, f- for instance, if, if if we take Federer and Djokovic, two members of the Big Four, one of the things I did during Wimbledon was to look at surface speed sensitivity within a certain matchup and you can't do that for very many matchups because there just aren't that many head-to-heads where there's so many so many matches on so many different surfaces but you can do that with Federer and and Djokovic and Nadal and Murray to some extent because they've played each other dozens of times and in the case of Federer Djokovic there was no effect I mean virtually zero I mean 
put him on put him on a fast grass court and the favorite has the same chance of winning as putting them on a slow clay court and I don't there's no obvious problem with that in the case of, of Federer Djokovic there are other other cases like Federer Nadal where you would expect to see uh, more of a surface sensitivity but when you start thinking about these guys like Zverev Tsitsipas Medvedev Auger Ali Asim like it's tough. It's tough to think of of matchups there that would be affected a lot by the surface. I mean, are there any for you that come to mind where one of these young guys has a big edge on on faster or slower surfaces? No, <laughs> I just gave my mind a few seconds to let something come to it. I mean, I think, as you said, Federer Djokovic has such a large sample size and by the nature of their age and inconsistency, these other guys don't. Um, I mean, we haven't talked about Kyrgios, and I don't know if he counts as young anymore, but I, I would rather have him playing for me on a fast surface than a slow one. Uh, but, you know, even he has done well at times on clay, so I I don't think it's extreme with him. Yeah, I guess that Kyrgios is often the outlier, so it's a, a fair point to bring up. And and it could also be that it, that there's there's a few players who are going to be extreme in one direction or the other who haven't peaked as soon. Or you know, Dominic Team often ends up in these conversations because he's one of the younger guys who's made Slam finals. So he's not in this generation we're talking about, but he is a guy who's clearly better on clay than he is on other surfaces. So. We can throw him in there as well. Maybe there's other guys who who are going to to become top teners, like Team, who are a lot better on clay. But it doesn't seem that way uh, from from what we're seeing from the, the the 19, 20, 21, 22 cohort right now. It seems a lot more balanced than that. Maybe Demonor and Hard. I mean, we've talked about that, and uh, I've, I've looked up his results elsewhere, and it's it's such a small sample because he's so young, but that that seems like another contender. Yeah, that's a good one. And one I don't remember whether we mentioned this when we talked about it a couple a couple weeks ago, but he was dealing with some some injury stuff this year. So maybe he'll he'll give us a different picture on clay next season. Uh, it would be nice to have him as a factor there. But yeah, that's a good example. And I certainly at this point I'd rather have him playing for me on hard court than than clay, unless maybe it's against Curios. So I don't think we need to come back to any of that. I, I want to give us enough time to talk about the the women's side as well. And the Rogers Cup wrapped up also yesterday. The event there was in Toronto. And it was a huge work week for Bianca Andreescu, who we talked about a lot earlier in the season. She pretty much came out of nowhere to become a it, not a top 10 player, but a top 10 ELO player at least, one of the most threatening women on the tour, um, winning Indian Wells. And she got hurt. Played the French Open, uh, but hasn't really been been a factor since uh, since March, I guess. She came back this week, uh, got another couple top ten wins, and then playing Serena Williams in the final. Uh, Serena had back spasms and only made it through four games. So Andreescu wins her her home home country uh, premier title in Toronto, which is is a pretty big deal. So she pulled out of Cincinnati. We're not going to see her again this week, understandably, coming back from injury and, and wanting, to, wanting to be in good shape for the U.S. Open. But I think one of the things we were talking about a few weeks running in the spring is, I mean, Andreescu, she's, I mean, she, 
she's almost at the top of the game. I mean, now she's up to number five in ELO. My most recently updated U.S. Open forecast has her at number four for the U.S. Open. Um, I mean, is this week enough, Carl, to say that she's back in the, the top five type mix, that she's one of the main players we should be watching on the women's side? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and she's, you know, her ELO is so is so good, uh, partly because she's, I think, 7-0 and against top 10 players this year. Yeah, 7-0. and She's, but, you know, even her, her ranking is 14 without hardly any points from last year. Her, her position in the race, which is just based on this year, is 8. And everything in the WTA, as usual, is tightly bunched. Like, yeah, she's, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, she, is, Serena was injured in the final and can't make hardly anything of, of that result. But, I mean, I think Serena would have, would have withdrawn or retired down, uh, up 3-1 rather than down 3-1. But, uh, everything else she did this week after not playing many matches for months was was you know totally earned and really impressive yeah the the big match i mean one of the big matches she also beat Carolina Pliskova in the, the quarters but she beat Kiki Bertens in the round of 16 which i mean is a pretty tough draw for Kiki as well as a tough draw for Bianca Andreescu coming back um, but Kiki Bertens is established herself as a top 10 player um she's defending a, her her first big hardcore title in cincinnati this this week that we're starting now so you've got to look at her as one of the top hardcore players on tour and andreescu got past her in three sets and then i mean Pliskova as well as a really solid hardcore player so and yeah it seems to me like she's fully back um and yeah, in a tournament where Halep had to pull out from injury, Ashley Barty lost her first round match against Sophia Kennan. Let's talk about Kennan. I mean, we've been—I don't think we've talked about her for a while, and now she's she's knocking out all sorts of top players. And she's got a a, a pretty passive game. I mean, I, I think you could say it's more passive than Andreescu's, although Andreescu is also a bit of a counterpuncher as well. Um, I think we've we've mentioned Kennan in passing several times and never really dug that that deep into what she's what she's doing on court. But I think I've always been a little skeptical of her um, because it, it didn't seem like she had a lot of weapons. But here she is; she keeps winning these matches against higher ranked players. Um, and what do you think the the long term forecast is for for Sophia Kennan right now? I mean, she is she someone we're going to see in the top five in the next couple of years? Ooh. I don't know about the next couple of years, but she, yeah, I, I'd be surprised if she didn't make it in her career. I mean, she's she's giving everyone with all different styles tough matches kind of everywhere. And she um, she's really tough. I mean, yeah, you can't look at, we were talking about the men and kill shots, and you don't see her putting away that many points, but uh, she... She doesn't. She doesn't. She's not passive either. I mean, I think it's. It's. She seems to be striking a pretty good medium, like Andreescu does, and uh, not getting blown off the court by players who are playing aggressively. So, I, I really like her future. On the other hand, I was just looking at the under twenty rankings in the WTA. So these are now players who are younger than Kennan because Kennan turned twenty in November. And it is a really formidable bunch. So thinking of Kennan reaching the top five, she's going to have a lot of uh, 
competition from younger players. So you're you're better at keeping everybody's age in your head than most of us are, Carl. So who are some of these names in the under twenties that stick out to you? If you count live tennis.eu as my head, then I'm very <laughs> very complimented by that and have a great head. Um, so I'm not going to pronounce them all correctly as usual, but Andreescu leads the pack, and then not far behind is Anisimova, who's more than a year younger than her. And Yastremska is about the same age as Andreescu. And then Sviatek, how do you say that? Sviatek, yeah. Sviatek, Kodopova, uh, Whitney Osigwe. Well, I have to point this out because it was cracking me up at the time. I watched a, an ITF stream of, a, of an Osigwe match last fall, and the, the commentator pronounced it Osegwe. So it was like the Irish version of, of a of a scooter or whatever you'd call it. Anyway. <laughs> um, and I think he was also saying Belinda Bensick in the same match. So it, it was a tough one to listen to, uh, even though it was an interesting match to watch. But yeah, it, it, I feel like Osikwe has a ways to go to, to be class with some of these others, but yeah, big time prospect. Yeah. Still two years younger than Andreescu. Uh, to segue from that, <laughs> Juvan. Yuvan, yeah, I, I Yuvan? I, I'm correcting you as if I know. Yeah, I'm an expert on pronoun- pronouncing Slovenian names, but yeah, she, <laughs> she's and she's the one who pushed Serena really hard at Roland Garros. So yeah, I think she's a, a really interesting prospect to watch. And then I'm not going to name everybody, but two more in the next bunch are 17 uh, year old McNally from the U.S. and Coco Gauff from the U.S. at 15, number 11 in the under 20 rankings, and she's just 15. So a lot of, lot of impressive players who have a lot of big wins this year in that group younger than Kennan. Yeah, it's a really instructive thing to do with uh, the WTA prospect rankings and the ATP as well. But the WTA prospects tend to be, at least in the last decade or so, they've been more of a factor sooner than men have. It's very instructive to go back five years or ten years or it really doesn't matter, but any one of the, the, those terms, and look at who the under-20 leaders were uh, at various points. And you will see some of the names you expect to see, but at any given time, there were a few who were like solid blue-chip prospects at the time who never really improved. And that isn't to, that isn't to contradict your point, Carl, because it, that isn't going to happen to all of them. I mean, some, some of those players are, are going to be great. A couple of them already are at least Andreescu, um, but it will be interesting to see which ones don't pan out and, and why. Um, McNally is one I'd wanted to talk about last week after, after her run in, in Washington, because not only did she, did she win a few matches she wasn't expected to win as a wild card in the, the WTA draw there, but she and Goff also won the doubles, um, which I don't think people were expecting from a couple of teenage wild cards. Uh, so McNally has a, a really varied game, even more so than Andreescu, who who also has has a, a pretty wide range of skills for someone who's still in her teens. So to to flip about as far on the age spectrum as we can without getting to Venus Williams, let's talk about Serena. So Serena had a solid week, also someone who hadn't played very much lately. Um, Again, the injuries strike. I feel like that's been a pretty constant refrain throughout the year, especially away from slams. Um, has some good matches, wins most of the time she plays, but then isn't always able to finish. So 
going into the U.S. Open, do, do you think she's... I mean, I don't think she retired or withdrew at any of the slams this year. So is she going to be able to, to to do that again at the U.S. Open? I mean, stay healthy enough to, to be competitive in New York? I think so. I think there's a good chance we won't see her much in Cincinnati, even if she does play. Uh, she hasn't withdrawn, correct? Not that I know of, but I didn't check. I, I know Andreescu already withdrew, but Serena I'm not sure about. I mean, this wouldn't be a new thing for this season if she treated some of the tour-level events as an opportunity for a match or two, whether she wins them or not. So especially considering she had to retire from a final with an injury, she might not want to play more than a match or two in Cincinnati. And she did say after Wimbledon that if she wants to win Grand Slam finals, maybe she has to have more practice playing finals away from slams and then you know her very next tournament she makes the final in toronto so it shows some real intent and i I think she wanted to play out that match but uh it's still about the slams and she her her long-term sort of form picture looks very good going into the u.s open so if she can be healthy from what kept her from finishing her final in toronto i think she's going to be a a very um serious contender maybe top two or three at the US really? Open? Really? Really. I might have given her the number five slot, but I will, I'm not ready to give her number two or three. So so who's definitely ahead of Serena going into the US Open? Uh, Barty? It, it is telling that my question involved the word definitely and your answer involved <laughs> a question mark. So, so maybe definitely is the wrong word to be asking about anything WTA related right now, especially with Barty coming off of a not a first round, but a first first match loss. But you'd put Barty as the favorite going in. Okay, now I'm peeking over at your slam report, and I see why you were so surprised by my Serena claim. Yes, I, I agree with the slam report, and Barty is uh, number one. Jeff is now producing uh, simulated forecasts of the next slam throughout the year. And, of course, we don't know the draw yet, and the seeds aren't final, but um, given that, it's, it's a pretty awesome way to get a read on who's got the best shot and and what the various probabilities are for each round yeah so so Barty's number one and since you're looking at it I remember Andreas he's number four but is is Halep number two and then I forget who's number three Pliskova nailed it all right and then where where does Serena come in number eight okay yeah that seems about right I was gonna say I was going to say number six if you were just asking me personally, but sure. Um, and as usual, that's just this this um, mixed bag weighted average of a higher chance than that of winning if she's healthy, but of course the the very non-zero chance that she's not. And even if she had the skills to, to win the final, that her body might not hold up and, you know, she might end up... Uh, with Carlos Ramos in the chair, and then the universe would just implode, and we wouldn't have any winner at all. There'd be no more tennis. Uh, but this podcast would continue. We'd, not, we'd break it down. Yeah, the podcast would continue almost every week. Unpredictably, not every week. But but yeah, we would talk about uh, the, the likelihood of the universe imploding again during another slam in the future. Next and universe with report with simulations. It would be all simulations. That's the great part. I feel like we'd become so much more mainstream because there would only be simulations. There would be no more actual tennis. So let's hope that doesn't happen. I hope that the USDA keeps that in mind when doing chair umpire assignments. 
Jeff, I know that we, when we are forecasting, when you are forecasting, each match counts the same. And there's especially that's intuitive on the women's side where every, every match is best of three. But do you, do you think it's possible? I know that overall for all players, that is the best approach and, and it makes sense. Do you think it's possible for Serena that there, that we should be waiting that if we weighted her slam results more heavily, we would get more accurate slam forecasts and non-slam forecasts? I'm not sure. I mean, it is her, if you take all rounds, is her match record at slams that much better than her non-slam match record? I mean, I know they're both incredibly good, but she's had her share of, of clunker results at slams as well. Uh, I think so. I could check easily using tennisabstract.com. Um, let's see. I mean, I think that uh, some of this is, yeah. Like, how do you how do you combine her whole career and do you do you count it all equally? But I, I think in general the perception is that if she were played as well away from slams as she did at slams, she would have like twenty more titles than she does. Well, I think, uh, yeah, it could it could be a factor. Um, some of that is just the the schedule she chooses. I mean, y- y- maybe the twenty you're talking about would be ones that she she played uh, and ended up not winning. But it also seems like if she played a full schedule every every year, all else equal, which it wouldn't be, but all else equal, um, she would have a lot more titles because and she's she's taken time off for all sorts of injury issues. Sometimes, I mean, she. She boycotted Indian Wells for most of her career for for unrelated reasons. Um, I mean, she definitely would have won a few of those. There's there's a lot of tournaments over the years she hasn't played, and that shouldn't affect the um, her ratings or her forecasts going into tournaments. Uh, but yeah, I'd want to I want to see if if she was really that different at the internationals and premieres she did play. So it looks like. For a career, she's won 88% of slam matches and 83% away from slams. And then because I'm like congenitally devil's advocate, I wonder how much of that is because the, the, the slam draws are 128s. So if we assume Serena mostly is playing the, the better class of non-slams, then she's not going to face a lot of the opponents that she would get in the first round of a slam. So she, she gets some easier matchups in slams than in non-slams. Yeah, so, we would definitely want the baseline for other top players. Of, is it typical that they would be that much better at slams? My, my, my guess is that they're slightly better at slams, not that much. It's hard to be that much better than 83%, so I think 5% points is bigger than it sounds. But yeah, I mean, all of this, you would want to be opponent-adjusted. and Yeah. Not a yeah, simple and I, question. I think it would, it would close the gap, but maybe maybe probably not all the way from 88 to 83. I, I would want to check after we finish recording. I, I think Stephanie Kowalczyk has, has done something on this. I know she did sort of like, I don't remember what she called it or what exactly she did, but something on slam performance relative to non-slam performance, uh, at least for men. I remember something about Alexander Zverev and his weak slam performance. I'm assuming she applied the same algorithm or approach to women as well. Um, but I don't have that at hand. But yeah, the other thing people talk about with Serena a lot is the the fact that she's basically unbeatable once she gets to a semifinal. And that, that hasn't been the case 
since since she came back from becoming a mother she's she's lost a couple later on matches but over the course of her career she's been the best player ever in semifinals and finals that might be fair to say um that's a tricky adjustment to make because yes you you would then give her an advantage when forecasting the semifinal and final but you'd have to balance that out by by giving her a bit of a disadvantage in the earlier rounds i'm not sure how that would shake out exactly maybe it would still mean she'd have the same chance of winning the u.s open this year she does otherwise when you 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 demote her a little in the first five rounds and promote her a bit in the last two but that's that's another thing that you hear a lot about serena that maybe the perfect forecast would take into consideration. Any more thoughts on that, Carl? <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I, I, I think you summed it up well. I, 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 yeah, I mean, definitely, like, so many, so much of tennis perceived wisdom fails to note the other side of the coin. So if it's like saying the big servers have an advantage in tie breaks because serving is half of tie breaks, but returning is the other half. So yeah, if Serena really is much better in semis and finals, then you've got to dock her for the earlier rounds. If she's much better at slams then you've got to dock her away from slams, these things have to add up. So, um, it's, and, and it seems like that would, that would even out except that in her case, if really all she cares about is tying and, passing Margaret Court, then she doesn't care nearly as much about the non-slams unless they help her win the slams, unless they're true warm-ups. Yes, which Cincinnati usually seems to be, but it would make sense, as we say, if if she skipped it this year or played a, a very shortened Cincinnati campaign. Um, yeah, one other thing, and just a, to, to take one step further with this idea of, of docking her in the first rounds and, and giving her a bonus toward the end is... If that is true, and uh, that is still something of an if, that would seem to mean that the draw matters more for her than for other people. I mean, if, you, if you're a weaker player in the first rounds, because your semifinal and final opponent are, I mean, they're not consistent or predictable, but they're usually going to be the best players in the tournament, or they're a lot more likely to be someone from the top five or the top ten. But your first round opponent could be, anywhere from someone who's probably top 20 in the world in hardcore ELO, even if they're outside the top 32 in the rankings, all the way down to someone who got a wild card from winning a collegiate tournament or something like that. So the the range is enormous. And even in the second and third round, the range is still pretty huge. And if if she is a weaker player then, then the difference between playing someone who's number 20 in ELO to number 200, that, that could be the difference between making it to the second week or not. Whereas someone who's more consistent from round to round, maybe uh, maybe they're less sensitive to, to some of the draw fluctuations. But that seems like the kind of thing that would drown out in the noise, and rightfully so, is probably not a huge factor. It's just one of those quirks that's interesting to think about, especially if it if it comes up, if she gets a particularly hard or, or easy draw in the early rounds. Yeah, the, the draw analysis can so often be like, oh, what quarter is each person in relative to the other quarters, and what are the semifinal matchups going to be? But the the things you really know at the point of the draw are who you're going to play in the first round and then with almost as much certainty who you're going to play in the second and that is that is discounted because players people just kind of assume that the top players won't care but that's not how it really plays out yeah and, and one of the things that's consistently interesting for me having surface elo ratings to look at is 
it gives us a really good view of who the floaters are. Um, both the floaters and sort of the anti-floaters, which a, a term I just made up and is pretty sinkers. Horrible. The sinkers. There you go. That's fantastic. Um, that you're always going to have a few players in, in a draw who have their ranking and seating because of performances on another surface. So until, until last week, I think Laszlo Gera was, was in position to be seated at the U S open. And I mean, I don't, I think my forecast gave him less than a 50% chance of winning his first round match because most of the unseated guys are better on hard than Gera is. And he's lost some ranking points. So he's out of the seating picture now, but there's always a couple guys like that. Um, but on the flip side, you, you have the, the, the traditional floaters, the people who were either unseated but very good, coming back from an injury, like Andreescu was unseated here in in Toronto, and then you have the the lower the lower seated players who could face a top player in the in as soon as the third round, and that gives us a fantastic segue to Nick Kyrgios, who we would have talked about had we recorded the podcast um, last week, and Kyrgios going into Washington, which he won a couple weeks ago. He was not in a position to have a U.S. Open Z. Now that he won the the 500 points for winning in Washington, he I think he's number 27 in in the rankings. So he's he's still got a decent shot at at facing one of the big three in the third round. Um, but yeah, that seems to be something that matters a lot more to to your chances of winning the tournament than who's who's quarter or who's half year in. Um, I mean, if, if you're if you're Roger Federer and you want to win the U.S. Open, you're probably going to have to beat Novak Djokovic, whether it's in the semi or the final. But whether you have to beat Nick Kyrgios to get there, that's that's a lot more up in the air. I mean, that that's almost entirely dependent on just the luck of the draw, literally the luck of the the bracket. Um, do you think Kyrgios should be treated as a, a big factor in New York? I mean, I guess he got this Washington win, looked really solid there, and then and then rode that momentum straight to, a, I think, a first-round loss in Montreal. I don't remember exactly. But um, typical roller coaster from Kyrgios. But is, is, he, is, is he a dark horse at the U.S. Open? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's so little to go. <laughs> there's just so little to go around after the big three that we can – we can see lots of people having a similarly tiny chance, but greater chance than, you know, 118 players in the field. And, and I'd put him in there. So how many more, players in the field? Well, I'm saying there are 128 in the field. There's three who have almost all the probability of winning another seven or so. You can like divvy up what's left, um, which is not much. Okay, I just wanted. It makes sense. I just wanted to unpack that since 118 is felt like it came out of nowhere. But yeah, there's not a lot of players with really much of a chance at all, and Kyrgios is kind of on the fringe of that group, right? Yeah, and I, you know, I think sometimes what we mean by dark horse is not we really can picture this guy winning the tournament. Although I guess why not if he can beat the, all the big three? He can't beat Murray, so if Murray's a factor at the U.S. Open, Kyrgios is in trouble. But if we look at the um, dark horse more as just who can like do something interesting that makes this tournament exciting than Kyrgios. Carlos Ramos. Oh God, poor guy. Um, Kyrgios is going to be a top contender there. And even at Wimbledon where it did end with this feeling of like, if only three were an even number, then we would, we would only have three players in the semifinals and they were the only ones who mattered. Um, that you could wait just a second. I'm I'm sorry I keep interrupting you, but was there a common feeling that people were saying if only three was an even number? 
Jeff, I don't know what circles you're you're traveling in, but I'm traveling in triangles, and there there's a lot of discussion of that. My circle feels very square. Fair. So, Kyrgios against Nadal was one of the highlights, and Kyrgios didn't win. He didn't even win two sets, but it was a moment where the tournament felt a lot more unpredictable and, and exciting in its early stages. Um, so, just in the sense that Kyrgios is a threat if he somehow does end up somewhere in the draw that he can play one of those guys without having win too many, having to win too many matches first. Uh, I think he's one of the top dark horses. So it, 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 I, I think that's a really good point that it, it really spiced up the early rounds of the tournament to have Kyrgios as a true unseated floater and not just a floater, but one who, who lands in Rafael Nadal's path. I'm mixing metaphors just left and right here. Um, but now he, he, I think he's pretty much guaranteed a seed for the U.S. Open. So, I, I mean, he could still face someone very good in the, in the third round, like I say, but but not before that. Uh, I don't know whether we've ever talked about this on the, on the podcast a lot, but there's always this conversation about whether Slam should go back to 16 seeds, whether they should seed players differently, like the Wimbledon has their formula. I mean, is is it better for the event if there are more floaters like that? Like, if we did cut down to 16 seeds and it was more likely that there'd be a Kyrgios versus Big 3 in the first or second round, or just, just more matches that would would feel like they had higher stakes um, before the, the middle weekend? I don't think there's that dramatic a drop-off uh, these days from... Um, from 32 below. I mean, you gave the extreme example, which it turns out won't apply, but looked like it could have of Jarrah. But I think there are other players who, um, I think there are plenty of floaters, is, I guess is what I'm saying. If what we consider a floater is a player who is as good or better than some seeds. Uh, I guess the question is like, how big of a difference is there between 17 and 33, not between 32 and 33? And I don't think I have intuition for that, so I could just look at your numbers. But but my my sense is that there are that there is not a giant drop off. That the drop off is more between three and four, and then between like twelve and thirteen, or ten and eleven, something like that. So that it wouldn't make that big a difference. And on the women's side, where it's even more wide open, I don't think it, it, it would dramatically increase unpredictability. Well, I think, yeah, all the proof you need for for that on the women's side is uh, Marie Bushkova, the 91st ranked qualifier from Czech Republic who reached the semifinal and won a set off of Serena Williams in Toronto this week. So, yeah, anything could happen. Everybody's a floater uh, in, in women's draws these days. But, I mean, you're right to point out there's there's not a huge difference between really pick your number like in, t- in terms of making for an interesting early round match i mean whoever number 17 is right now probably isn't that much different from whoever number 40 is right now or number 33 but put another way like yes curios is always going to be an outlier curios is one of the to use his own favorite word he's, he's one of the most entertaining players so whoever whatever he does whoever he faces in in each round he plays is going to be one of the the more watched more followed matches um, but with Kyrgios in the top 32, uh, you said you think there are more floaters. Are there other names that come to mind who aren't going to have seeds in New York who you think would make for some really interesting first two-round watching? Uh, let me check the seed report. 
Well, I'll, I'll throw out one while you do that. And the name that comes to mind for me is Sangha. And I kind of made fun of myself in our last episode about Sangha, where I just, I always think he's, he's a threat. And even though he's been proving to me for years that he's not really much of a threat, uh, I can't help but think that, you know, we're going to get some good tennis from him. This is his week. And in fairness to me, you often do. I mean, maybe not past the quarterfinals, but, but he, he can, he is still good enough to, to knock out a, maybe not a big three, but, but a seed and give you some entertaining tennis along the way. But who else have you got there, Carl? Well, and I don't know if you were doing this off the slam report, but Sangha is the highest, has the highest probability of winning the tournament among unseeded Yeah, I players. wrote that by hand right before we started <laughs> recording. Nice. It's like editing Wikipedia to make a point. Yes. So the next name that pops for me is El Chapo. Disappointing season, but some great history in New York and certainly could could make for some exciting early matches, even if, per your show notes, he can't return on any surface. Uh, Sam Query just had a good Wimbledon and, um, you know, some good history in New York and having a nice comeback. And then we've talked about Demonar, clearly an interesting floater. Had a, He's had out, a, of the, out of the top 32. I didn't realize that. Yeah, okay. he, he must have dropped some points because, I mean, he won Washington last year, made the final, made the final, I think. Yeah. Um, Opelka has had some really good results this year. American Dan Evans has had some good results, including, as you said, just pushing Rafa in uh, Montreal. And uh, Grigor Dimitrov is an interesting one. I mean, I don't know what to make of him these days, but clearly has a lot of a lot of strong history. And I mean, he's he's kind of had a season of Stan Wawrinka losses. And maybe if he had won some of those matches, which were all pretty close, he would be a seed right now. So and I he's could probably go going to drop Avrinka in the first round. If he oh, naturally, well. three tie breaks, lose them all. Uh, there are other na- There are lots of names here that interest me. I mean, Jan Leonard Struff is another one. Karina Busta, former semifinalist, although hasn't had a great year. But anyway, Carl, I will just stop. Just because they have more names doesn't mean they have a better chance of winning. <laughs> I will stop there. But there are so many names here who I could see giving someone a tough time in the first couple of rounds. Okay, I like your optimism. I am surprised you pushed it as far as Jan Leonard Struff, but I'm impressed. And I have to throw in there one last name before we wrap it up for this week. We have probably playing qualifying and hopefully qualifying is the great American hope, Tim Smichek, who I think he hasn't announced anything, but it seems like he's wrapping up his career. So this is probably his last U.S. Open. He's done okay at some challengers this year. Um, so I'm hoping he qualifies and at least gives us an entertaining round or two in the main draw. Probably not going to win the tournament, but... So you're picking him for the semis? Yeah, I think I'm picking him for the semis. It turns out, I didn't know this before this episode, but three is not an even number. So all all of you in your tennis circles, you need a fourth player to fill out the semifinals. And my fourth player is Tim Smichek. Whose new nickname is three is not an even number? That's quite a nickname. That's a lot for him to take into retirement. That'll be his, his tennis club that he starts in Milwaukee after retiring. It'll be the, the three is not an even number club. So, yes, this has been episode 73 of the Our Inside Jokes Are Not At All Funny Tennis Abstract Podcast. Um, Carl, as always, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Jeff. Um, and everyone, thank you for listening. We are kicking off the, the Cincinnati Masters today, pretty much as soon as we finish this recording. So lots of great tennis to watch this week. 
in all likelihood, we'll be back a week from now with a recap of Cincy and, and more looking ahead to the final slam of the year in New York. So yeah, thanks for joining us and we'll see you then.